If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to the book of Exodus, and we're going to be in chapter 25. There's a phrase that I use with uh, my team, so the guys that I I work with, um, when they'll come to me with like an idea or something that they want to do, I always say to them, I say, tell me the time, don't tell me how to build a watch. Um, I have a kind of mind where I want to know like what something does, but not necessarily always how it does what it does. So uh, Ben, who's leading us in worship today, is like the exact opposite. He has this brilliant mind where he can like, he like takes electronics apart and puts them back together and figures out like how things work. I just need to know like what does it do and can it do it quickly for me? So I bring that up because I've been assigned six chapters of like details um, in the book of Exodus this morning, um, details of how to build the tabernacle and all the furniture and all the stuff that's in it. So just like instructions, which I'm like, God, you're really funny. You've given that to me. Um, but I'll tell you what, I've really enjoyed what I've learned and what I've been reminded of, um, of who God is and, and what he's doing in the world. So I'm hoping that God really, um, that God does the same for you here this morning uh, as well. When um, let me, let, me, let me start by doing this. Let's read Exodus chapter 25. We're going to read the first just nine verses to kind of set uh, the stage for where we're going today um, through Exodus chapter 25 for, through uh, chapter 31, verse 1 in, in Exodus 25. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. And you're to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. And these are the offerings that you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. And then verse... Um, Verse 8 is really key, and this kind of sets the tone for everything we're going to see this morning. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern that I show you. When my wife and I in 2007 moved from Florida to Arizona, there were some things that we had never really experienced before that we found uh, to, to experience in Arizona. Um, first was the, the sunsets. Arizona sunsets are really hard to beat. They're really beautiful, and maybe sometime we just kind of get used to them, but they're really pretty amazing. Um, the second thing was dry heat, and uh, we didn't know that was a thing, and it is. It's real. And dry heat, so we experience that in very real. And then um, thirdly, um, I know, that's how I feel in the <laughs> summer. Um, and the third thing that we experienced that we had never really experienced before was Ikea. And uh, <laughs> it was a magical place of oddly named furniture and meatballs. It was great. Um, but when we walked into Ikea, I remember there was this banner that was on the wall, and it really struck me. Uh, it says, home is the most important place in the world. And I was like, you might not know how to name a bookshelf, but I think you're on to something here <laughs> with, with this. And there's something that, that really does resonate with us with that phrase, that home is the most important place in the world. You see, in, in the beginning, the scripture tells us that there is the, the garden home of humanity named Eden. And Eden's remarkable. It's lush and beautiful, and there's all types of plants and animals. And in the middle of this garden is the tree of life. But the most significant thing about Eden is that humanity was at home with God. God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, the scripture says. God was with them. But 
Adam and Eve, they believe the lie, they rebel against God, and then they hide from God. And the scripture says God actually comes looking for them, and he's saying, where are you? Why are you hiding? And they're hiding because sin and shame have entered our story. And when the first humans reject God, they're exiled from Eden. They're exiled from home. And ever since that moment, humanity has had a deep longing for home. We've had this deep sense of dislocation. And our greatest need is, is not the felt needs that we might identify. I don't know why people come to church all the time. I, I think, but I know that some of you, you come here because there's something that you feel like you really need. And you think, maybe if I go to church, God will bring that thing that I feel like I really need. But what you and I need most, what you and I need the most, is the presence and the power of God in our lives. This is what our church needs most. You might have a lot of opinions on what you think our church needs or needs to be doing, but what our church needs the most, what we need to be marked by, what should be said of us in our community, in our state, and beyond, is that those are our people who experience the presence and the power of God. What most people think about God is that he wants to save you and he just wants you to behave. But what people typically don't see is that God's ultimate intent and ultimate desire is to display his glory, the fullness of who he is, and to dwell within you and among us, and that his presence would be close and it would not be a terrifying experience like it was there with Adam and Eve after their fall, but that would be healing and beautiful. You see, God didn't banish mankind from Eden and then just stay in the garden. He didn't just send them out and say, okay, now you guys go figure it out. If you look in the stories of the scripture, he actually pursues them through human history because God knows the only remedy for our exile, the only remedy for our homelessness is the presence of God. A.W. Tozer, there's lots of authors who have written on this. A.W. Tozer, he says this, our restlessness, our restlessness comes from being away from God's presence. Augustine famously said, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. What they're saying is we have a creator and our heart will only be at rest when we're with our creator because that's what we've been designed for. That's who we've been designed to be with. C.S. Lewis, he'd say it this way. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The, the mission of God, meaning like what God is up to in the world, is the presence of God in all of creation, every square inch of the universe, that he would reinvade his creation. And what we're gonna see in Exodus this morning is a kind of map that shows us the way back home. The, the, the building of the tabernacle is, is an act of recreation that kind of culminates in a Sabbath or like in a new seventh day. There is a re-Edenization of the world that God is working out. God's come to his people, and through his people, his presence is known and felt in the world, and his glory is displayed. And God intends to be present with his people in a way that he has not been before. The earthly tabernacle that we're going to look at, it's a symbol of a greater heavenly reality, which is that God is here, that he's among us, that he's tabernacled with his people. So let's pray and uh, ask God to help us with this this morning. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. And God, I thank you for, um, God, how it constantly points us to and reminds us of the brilliant and beautiful things about who you are, what you've done on our behalf. And so God, there is a lot to work through this morning, but I pray, God, that we would not get bogged down 
Um, and God, that we would not just simply want to skip past all these details, but I pray, God, that you would illuminate the scriptures in such a way that our affection for you would really be stirred up. And God, I confess and know full well that I'm not able to do that on my own. So Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you move? And would you um, set us free by the truth of your word? Would you illuminate the scriptures? Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear? Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you uh, were ever to come to my house and walk around my house, you would see things that would kind of teach you um, some stuff about me and my family, the people who are in, in the house. You'd walk through and you'd see all these pictures on the wall of our family and be like, oh, they've got three kids. They really like to take pictures of themselves. This is who these people are, right? We have these scriptures that are like printed on different signs and stuff that are hanging around the house. So you'd say, oh, the Bible or the scriptures must be important to them. They have them on signs around, right? My wife, she has these candles that smell like cookies. And so there, it always smells like cookies. There aren't always cookies, um, which I've learned. Uh, but, but it always smells like cookies. So it's kind of a trick in our house. Um, if you're barefoot in our house, you're guaranteed to step on a Lego. So uh, it just happens. It's how it is around our house. So, but if you walk through my house, you're going to learn stuff about me and about our family. And God's house is really the, the same. And so what we're going to do this morning um, is we're going to look at the details about the things, about the furniture, about the people that are in his, in his house. And we're going to learn things about him. And we're going to kind of walk through this house together. Now, there's a lot of content here. Um, but like I've said already, don't get um, in this kind of mode where like, you know, it's like when you get to the genealogy part in the Bible and you're like, okay, I have to read this because I'm trying to read the Bible in the whole year, but I just want to skip by it, right? So there's really, really important stuff and beautiful stuff about God that we're going to see in this. Um, but there is quite a bit of just kind of details and content to work through as we kind of walk through God's house together. So let's do that. Chapter 25 in the book of Exodus. We're going to put the text up on the screen. Um, so if you don't kind of flip through, you uh, you can at least follow on the screen. The first thing we're going to see is the ark, and on the ark is the mercy seat or the atonement cover. Uh, verse 10, chapter 25, have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits. So a cubit is about a foot and a half. So you're going to hear that measurement a lot. So when you think cubit, just think, okay, 1.5 feet. Uh, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and, and, a, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out. Make a gold molding around it. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you, and make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half um, cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim, so they're these like kind of angelic beings, out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece on the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward overshadowing the cover with them the cherubim are to face each other looking toward the cover place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that i'll give you there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law i will meet with you and give you all my commands for the israelites so the ark of the covenant and we're going to have some kind of artistic renderings of some of these pieces of furniture there it's, it's a chest that held the tablets engraved with the Ten Commandments. One, one commentary describes it like this. The ark is the supreme post-Sinai symbol. So remember Mount Sinai, Moses' uh, encounter with God there? It's the, it's the supreme post-Sinai symbol of the presence of Yahweh. It's the only furnishing that's located in the most 
holy place of the tabernacle. The ark is the focus of God's presence with his people, the central point of contact between heaven and the tabernacle, the earthly symbol of heaven. And on top of the ark was the atonement cover or the the mercy seat. Atonement is a word that's derived from the verb that means to cover over. And what's being covered uh, is the, the law of God is being covered over. The mercy seat sat above the, the tablets. So God's rule, what's pictured here is God's rule not only brings justice, but it also brings mercy. And the atonement cover served as the physical location at which the mercy and the judgment of God met and the sins of mankind were atoned for. So we start with the ark there. Next in chapter 25, there's the table, the table of the bread of presence. Verse 23, make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high. Make its plates and dishes of pure gold as well as its pitchers and bowls for the pouring out of offerings. Put the bread of the presence on this table to me before all times. Most homes have a table where meals are enjoyed. Um, The table at our house, it's, it's a pretty cheap table. It's actually a table that we got at Ikea. A lot of, lot of airtime for Ikea this morning. Um, but it's kind of one of those tables where, like, if you have a piece of paper and you write on it, like, whatever you wrote on the paper leaves an indentation in the table. Um, and so my wife's always like, we got to get a new table. This thing is. But I really love it because we, we bought the table before we had kids. And now, like, I can see all the places where, like, the kids have, like, written their name or done their homework. And there's, like, all these scratches or places where, you know, our small group has had game night and they've kind of, you know, written out the thing and filled stuff. And so there's there. There's a lot of stab marks from forks for some reason. Our table got stabbed a lot. It still does. Um, but I love like all the little kind of pieces and parts and like all the little weird blemishes and scratches and kind of knacks and stuff in it. But the table for me is a, is a, it's a place in our home um, where strangers and guests have become friends and family. It's a reminder, that table to me is a reminder of, of life together. It's a, it's a powerful piece of furniture in, in a home. And here in God's prototype home uh, is a table and it's set up for a meal that's spread with, with food. Not because God is hungry, but, it, but it's there as a permanent sign that God invites us to enjoy community with him. That, that's why the, the bread of presence is there. A, a meal in the presence of God is, is the goal of our salvation. And the promise was permanently embodied in the table at the tabernacle with the table and the bread. So we've got an ark, we have the table. The next thing that's described is the lampstand. Look at verse 31. Make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its, its base and shaft and make it flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side, three on the other, and then make it seven lamps and set them up on it so that they light the space in front of it. So the lamp is actually designed to resemble the tree of life for the garden. So one of the things that's very interesting, we really see all throughout Exodus, but specifically in this section here, there are a lot of echoes back to creation. There's a lot of echoes back to the garden of of Eden, and the, the lampstand is one of those things. So it's designed to resemble that, but it also has a very practical function. It's to give light. And it's showing us that God's home is a place of life and a place of light. So when the tabernacle is built and this furniture is all placed within it, we're going to see it as a place of mercy, which we see in the ark, specifically the mercy seat covering uh, the, the Ten Commandments. It's a place of fellowship. It's a place of communion represented by the table. And it's a place of light represented by the lampstand. Now, it might seem a little odd that we get all the instructions for, we get instructions for furniture before we get instructions for the home. And the reason is, is that the furniture is the, is the promise of a new home. So then chapter 26 goes to the tabernacle. 
Verse 1, make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple and scarlet yarn, with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. Make, verse 31, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the class and place the Ark of the Covenant, be, covenant law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. If you'll notice in these instructions, the, the tabernacle and all of its furniture, it's all designed to be moved because God is coming to dwell with people. God's going with his people. That's the point. That's what God is trying to communicate here through the furniture and the tabernacle. One commentator talking about the tabernacle says this, the, tab the tabernacle seems to represent a microcosm of creation itself. The splendor and beauty of the materials used, the fine fabrics, the precious metals and stones, all affirm the goodness of the created world. The precise and perfect dimensions of the tabernacle indicate a sense of order amid chaos, which is the creation story. To think of the tabernacle as an act of cosmic recreation is precisely what the building of the tabernacle originally intended to convey. It was a piece of holy ground in a world that had lost its way. And there's a picture of what it would have looked like there. The tabernacle is a picture of home, but it, but it wasn't home. It's not Eden. It's, it's, it's a sort of map home. And the tabernacle itself kind of embodies this just by the way that it's built. It's four layers. The inner layer is blue to represent the heavens. The second layer is made of goat skins to represent the covering that God provided for Adam and Eve. Uh, the third layer is ram skins that's dyed red to represent the sacrifices and blood required to provide a covering for sin. And it's not entirely um, clear what the final layer is made of, but it seems to be that this layer was designed to kind of protect everything from the elements. And as you would enter the tabernacle, right before you was this thick curtain that would bar the way to God's holy presence, which highlights our problem and highlighted the problem of the Israelites, God's holiness and our sinfulness. The, the Bible says that our God is a consuming fire, which means that the holiness of God burns so brightly and beautifully that anything that is not holy is utterly destroyed and consumed. It's decorated with these cherubim, um, which is an echo to Eden, where the cherubim guarded the entrance after Adam and Eve were driven out. And they don't protect God from us, they protect us from God. So while the tabernacle shows us how wonderful it is to live with God, it also is a picture that displays why we can't. Chapter 27, it actually goes back to description and instruction about furniture, um, specifically the altar. Put chapter 27, verse 1. Build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long, and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns and the altar are of one piece and overlay the altar with bronze. Make all its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, and fire pans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network, and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar so that it is halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be in inserted into the ring so that they will be on two sides of the altar when it's carried and make the altar hollow out of boards. It is to be made just as you were shown in the mountain. Now, why did we go back to furniture description? It's described here because it represents the solution to the problem. If the tabernacle shows, okay, we're separated from God because of our sinfulness and he's holy, the altar here represents the solution. The way back to God is through the blood of sacrifice. As an Israelite would enter the courtyard, the first things that they would encounter would be the altar. 
This is what kind of dominated their way in, a reminder that he or she deserved to die for their sin, a reminder that they, be, that they deserve to be eternally excluded from God's presence, which is what hell is. And a sacrifice, an animal, uh, and, and a sacrifice, an animal died in place of the Israelites. It took the punishment that they deserved for their sins that they had committed. But the altar is meant to be reused, meaning that these sacrifices would be repeated hundreds and hundreds of times. And they're pointers to God's solution for sin, but they are not the solution itself. So the next thing that's described in chapter 27 is the courtyard of the tabernacle. And we're not going to go too deep into that, but there's two things I want to point out. One, it was the exclusive way into the presence of God, showing that there's only one way to God. Two, um, the scripture talks about the way that the courtyard was oriented, and it's oriented towards the east. And commentators believe that this is significant because east is the direction that, that humanity traveled after the exile of Eden. It says that after Adam and Eve were exiled, they went to the east. After Cain killed his brother Abel, he went east. And so what this description here tells us about the courtyard and about the temple in particular, or excuse me, the tabernacle in particular, is that there's only one way, and it's oriented towards those who have rebelled against God. The end of 27, there's, there's something that's very interesting there that's listed. It says this in verse 20, Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning. In a tent of meeting outside the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant Law, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for generations to come. What that's telling us is in the tabernacle, the light is always on. The light's always on because God is home. There's a welcome waiting for you. There's bread on the table. Now, this architecture, it matters. It, it matters because it points us to our true home. It reminds us of the great privilege that we have of being able to come to the presence of God. And Hebrews chapter 10 speaks to this, says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. In chapter 28 and 29, the, the focus turns to the priests. The priests are the ones who would serve in the tabernacle, and they're pictures of the person who would lead us home. Look at verse 28, or excuse me, chapter 28, verse 1. Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his son Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests, make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor, and tell all the skilled workers to whom I give wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration, meaning being set apart, so he may serve me as a priest. And these are the garments that they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests, and have them use gold and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. God calls Aaron and his sons to be select, set apart, consecrated group of men that will act as mediators between the people of God and God and are going to serve in the tabernacle. There's a picture of what those garments will be like. And let's just kind of real quick kind of look what, through what they are. So there's the ephod. Um, that's a generally a word for garment, but here it signifies that there's, there's some religious significance there. Um, and the materials of the ephod are 
represented aspects of the Lord's deity. So there's the gold strand throughout that speaks to his eternal existence and his omnipotence. There's the white linen of his purity, the scarlet of his blood that would be shed, and the purple of his royalty. And on the shoulders were, the, were two stones with the names of the 12 tribes that would be etched on them, and the priest would carry these names into the presence of God. Next is the breast piece, and the breast piece was made up of 12 precious stones, and the priest would have the names of the tribes close to his heart. And the names of the tribes would be etched on these stones. And as he wore this, he would literally feel the weight or the burden of these people. There's two other stones that are, are mentioned uh, in the pocket of the breastpiece, the Urim and the Thummim. And, and the Urim means light, Thummim means perfection. And we're not exactly sure how this worked, but they would be used in seeking divine counsel and guidance from the Lord. Um, then there's the, the mitre or the diadem. Um, it's a, mitre is a word that means to wrap around. It's a headdress that would be similar to a turban. And on it, there would be a plate of pure gold with the words, holy to the Lord, fixed uh, to the front. Now, all these garments, they all point and they serve as a picture of what the ideal high priest would, would look like. This is what I mean by that. The ideal high priest would be a man of heaven. So everything in the garments of the high priest is made up of the same material that the tabernacle is made up of. The, the, high, the high priest is kind of like a mini tabernacle. He's, he's a man of heaven who walks in all the beauty and the glory and the presence of God. The ideal high priest is someone who represents and who is responsible for his people. Um, so on his uh, heart, on, on his shoulders engraved the names of the sons of Israel. He bears their weight as he enters the Holy of Holies to atone for their sins. Last thing about the garments is that they represent the one who trusts in, who has the heart, the pleasure of God for those who are the sons and daughters of God. So chapter 29 um, talks about how they're, they're consecrated. And the main subject of it, um, and I encourage you to go back and read it. We're not going to go through it right this second. Um, but but the, the point is how ordinary, sinful people, in this case Aaron and his sons, can enter into the priesthood. They're sinners who would be ministering to sinners. And it talks all about how they're consecrated, how they're washed, how the garments are put on them, how they're anointed with oil. Um, and they're all pictures that show the cleansing that God's people will experience ultimately through Jesus. Now, the tabernacle is the place in which Israel meets with God, and the priest is the person in whom they meet God and through whom they can come to meet with God. With a priest, people can now come before God. And the end of, end of chapter 29, it ends with a description of how God actually meets with his people. In verse 41, God eats with his people through a food offering that's presented to the Lord. In verse 42, God speaks through his people. And God 40, in verse 42 and 43, God meets with his people. And then finally, and most importantly, Exodus chapter 29, 45, and 46, God dwells with his people. So then we move to Exodus chapter 30, and it starts with a description of the altar of incense. It says this, verse 1, Make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. It is to be square, a cubit long, and a cubit wide, two cubits high. It's horn of one piece with it. Overlay the top and all the sides and the horns with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight, so incense will burn regularly before the Lord for generations to come. Do not offer on this altar any other incense or burnt offering or grain offering, and do not pour a drink offering on it. Once a year, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. 
So the altar that's described here, it's not used for anything else except for the burning of incense. And we're not told exactly what that symbolizes, but most scholars believe that the incense actually represents the prayers of God's people. But what is emphasized here in verse 6 is the location of the altar. Put the altar in front of the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant Law before the atonement cover that is over the tablets of the Covenant Law where I'll meet with you. So think about what this altar is doing. It's constantly creating like smoke. It's constantly creating cloud. And what it's doing is it's replicating the experience that Moses would have had at Mount Sinai. It's it's creating a cloud of smoke as a picture of the cloud on Mount Sinai that God descended through and Moses ascended to to be with God. So what is all this telling us? What is all this stuff kind of pointing to? Well, uh, last week, Tim made the statement. He said, there are some people who are moving away from the Old Testament. Like, they're feeling it's not relevant. It's, not, it's actually not helpful. It actually kind of creates kind of an obstacle for us. But this is why the Old Testament is so important. Picture after picture in the events and the people and the rituals of the Old Testament, they're all concentrated on and they're all pointing us towards one person, Jesus. In the book of Exodus, we've already seen that Christ is the Passover lamb that he's the manna from heaven, he's the water of life, he's the rock that bears our punishment, he's the mediator and the embodiment of God's will. And what we've seen this morning in these chapters is that Christ is the tabernacle. And we see him as the priest in the tabernacle and the sacrifice in the tabernacle. All of what we looked at today, and I know it was just this kind of brief flyover, but it all points us forward to our true home. The tabernacle is an echo back to Eden, but it also points us for it's a map to our true home, who is Jesus. And if in Eden, humanity rejected the authority of our Heavenly Father, in God's new home, he restores his life-giving rule of love in the person of Jesus. Just like there's an ark in the tabernacle, Jesus is the true ark. He's the person or the, or the place that, where we live under the reign and the mercy of God. Just like there's a table with bread in the tabernacle, Jesus is the true bread. He's the bread through whom we eat in the presence of God. He's the bread of life, and whoever comes to him will never go hungry. Just like there's a lamp in the tabernacle, Jesus is the true lamp. He's the light of the world, and whoever follows him will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There's a sacrifice that takes place in the tabernacle, but Jesus is the true sacrifice. He's a sacrifice to end all sacrifices that had ever been offered on the altar. He prepared our place in God's home by dying in our place. Christ embodies the tabernacle, not by how he is dressed, but by who he is. His clothes are not reminders of the heavenly reality. Rather, he himself as God and man in the manifestation of that reality, that which the tabernacle and the priesthood together symbolized partially is fully embodied in the person of Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 14, John says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That word dwell there is the Greek word for tabernacle. What John is telling us is that Jesus, the Word, tabernacled among us. The intention is that Jesus be seen as the truer and better tabernacle, that Christ fulfills the purpose for which the tabernacle was built. Tim Chester is an author and a writer, and he says this. He says, Jesus is our home, and he is the way home. God made his home among us in the person of Jesus so that he could bring us home to live with Jesus. Jesus is the point where heaven touches earth. The the best commentary and kind of 
synopsis of this whole section is found in Hebrews chapter 9. It says this, Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up, and in its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded in the stone tablets of the covenant. And above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and only that once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of people that they had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. The writer of Hebrews says this, it's an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. What is all this pointing to? How do we get home? How do we enter into God's presence? How, how do we experience the presence of God? Through Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. He is a man from heaven who bears the burdens of the sinners on his shoulders. In his heart, he ushers in an understanding of the pleasure of God for sinners who are saved by his grace. By his one sacrifice, he has in one time for all time perfected those who are being sanctified. And now the law is written on our hearts and minds, and now we are able to joyfully obey. Because of the sacrifice of Christ on his cross, he remembers our sins no more. The altar is shut down for good because he is the fulfillment of all that it pointed to. So what does this mean for us? That as followers of Jesus, you and I are consecrated, set apart like Aaron and his sons. Tim's going to talk more about this in a couple weeks. But now we are the priesthood of believers. And we are washed not just with water, but with the blood of Jesus. We cannot be dirty again. And the robes that we wear are the robes of the righteousness of Christ. It means that as a priest, you have purpose. And that you have the presence of God with you and the power of the Holy Spirit in you. And to live like a kingdom of priests in this world, we need to be a people of faithful presence and prayer. Jesus is the lamp, the light of the world, and we're reflections of that light as he tabernacles inside of us through the reflection of the Holy Spirit. Our faithful presence in the world as witnesses to the glory and the goodness of God through the incense of our prayers. Here's what I mean by faithful presence and audacious prayers. Faithful presence, it means that we embrace the ordinary things of our life and we're faithful in those things as husbands and wives, as sons and daughters, as parents, as employees, as students. We're faithful in those things that God has given us and faithful in the places that God has placed us. Faithful to one another in our love and service to each other. Faithful in our love and our service to the lost and to the least and to the last. And it means that we're audacious in our prayers. We embrace the ordinary, but we're audacious in our prayer. We believe that God can only do what, what God can do which means we ask for God to heal. We ask for God to save, to break through, to move, to drive out, to open up, to help us. 
which means we're expecting him to do the radical while we embrace the ordinary. And we live our lives together outside these walls as a kingdom priest, embracing the faithful presence in the ordinary and praying and pleading with God for him to break through and do what only he can do in this world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, again, thank you for what you've shown us this morning. And God, I thank you for um, the brilliance of your design, the specifics of your instruction. And God, that it all points to you. Jesus, it all, sh- it all shows us who you are and what you have done and what you're doing in the world. And God, just as Aaron and his sons have been set apart into service, God, we know that those of us who follow you, um, God, you, you're putting us in places to be a faithful witness to who you are. God, you're, you're putting us in places in life where, God, we'd be prayerfully, fully dependent on you. And so, God, um, forgive us for the times when we are unfaithful with what you've given us. God, forgive us of our arrogance, God, where we haven't considered you. Or God, we, we haven't come before you in, in moments of prayer. Or God, we've relied on our own intellect and skill and wisdom and resources. God, and we have not looked to you. I thank you for, um, I thank you for the reality that you're with us and the joy that we have and the security that we have because of that. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.